Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. I had about five friends and a cousin who were murdered before I was 16 years old. And where I grew up, I remember my brother was being pulled over a lot by police officers in some really horrible situations. And so there was this one time I was with my black girlfriend and my other brown girlfriend, and I was pulled over by a police officer. And it wasn't just the one cop car that was there. I was swarmed by four cop cars all of a sudden, and it was in the evening. So I remember just guns being drawn and that bright, bright mega light being flashed on me. So I instantly went into hyper alert. I opened the door. I got out of the car. I put my hands up and I'm like, I don't have anything. And then I see them all pointing the guns at me and ordering me back in the car. is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Dr. Dina Cuervo. She is a licensed clinical psychologist who primarily works with underserved communities of color and immigrants especially in California. She specializes in child psychology, developmental trauma, and secondary traumatic stress. Her postdoctoral fellowship focused on bringing trauma-sensitive practices to urban inner-city schools. She has led crisis support groups for those impacted by shootings and violence and has worked directly with criminal offenders. Dina has also run support groups for teachers working with traumatized students in low-income urban communities. Her personal bilingual bicultural experience as first generation born in the U.S. inherently contributes to her passionate support for the struggles of immigrants and communities of color, as well as her commitment to gender and racial equality, youth and social justice, and making a positive social impact as a therapist. She is also an avid world traveler, has been to 30 countries, and is now building her practice with a location-independent infrastructure so she can serve her clients from anywhere in the world. Dina, welcome to the show. Well, hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this today. I am so excited to have you here. We are not in person today. I am in Asheville, North Carolina, and you are in one of my favorite cities in the world, Los Angeles, California, where I lived for seven years. But we should give some context as to how we met. We've actually known each other now for over two years. And we first met on a nomad cruise back in 2018, going from Spain to Greece. Yes. Yeah, I remember that one. It was my first one. It was my first one as well. And Maverick Show listeners will actually know some of our crew that we developed on that boat. Mei Ling Lai, for example, was episode number one of the Maverick Show. I actually interviewed her 
on that boat. So she was part of our crew and uh, just a great group of folks that we still all hang out together today. So I am super, super excited though, Dina, to finally have you on the show and really, really important timing. I wanted to have you come on the show today, especially to talk about the psychological impact of systemic racism and the concept of racism as psychological trauma. But before we get into that, I would love to just open this up by having you share a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and what your experience was like, and how that led you to both this line of work and your passion for these issues. Sure. And I agree. Right now, it's a very timely subject. So I'm really excited that we have the chance to talk about it. So as for me, uh, just a little bit about my background in terms of ethnicity. I'm mixed, white and Panamanian, but I very much identify with my Panamanian side. I grew up in Los Angeles and typically my friend group when I was younger from you know early childhood to through high school was a very diverse group and a lot of Latinos and Blacks in my group. And so what I was in, I would say, was elementary school. A lot of my friends at that time were coming from single-parent homes. There was violence in the home, really not optimal environments for kids. And I saw how my friends were always struggling and just didn't have nurturing homes. The teachers at our school were frequently putting us down. We were kind of classified into this little group and didn't really trust that we would succeed. You know, they would make uh, comments every now and then to us about it. And uh, they seemed to just really focus on any negative behavior that was displayed and never really encouraging or motivating or showing a different way of doing things. And so just seeing all of that, I really wanted to help kids, especially teenagers who were at risk of going down the wrong path you know, and engaging in risky behaviors and violence. I mean, when I was younger, I had about five friends and a cousin who were murdered before I was 16 years old. Three of my good friends, also their parents relocated them to other states for safety. So seeing all of that, it just made a huge impact on me. And so I knew that this was what I wanted to do. Wow. And from there, can you talk about what your path was like to clinical psychology and your choice to specialize in trauma? And maybe even just start off by defining what is trauma? Yes. So the trauma piece came a little bit later, but I knew that I wanted to help these teenagers. And then when I started looking more at it and learning as I was in the field, I realized that a lot of these kids had come from trauma. So they had experienced, you know, either violence in the community, um, situations at home, uh, discrimination, and even personally discrimination that I had experienced throughout the time. And I knew how much of an impact it had made on me and really formed part of my worldview. And so I just kind of singled in on like, this is the way from the bottom up to be able to help these kids by focusing on the trauma. Also to differentiate, there's trauma and then there's a few trauma disorders that clinicians, therapists, and psychiatrists give. And one of those is called post-traumatic stress disorder, known as PTSD. And so somebody can have experienced a trauma, but not develop PTSD per se. And so what we're going to be talking about today is mostly focusing on the trauma piece, because somebody can have a lot of symptoms and be greatly impacted, but still not qualify for this diagnosis because it has a strict set of criteria, which, you know, in my opinion, and I think others uh, would share my stance as well in the field that it doesn't really include the cultural perspective and how uh, racial trauma can impact somebody. So basically what trauma is, it's a direct exposure through experiencing an actual or threatened death or serious injury, either to yourself or to somebody else, or witnessing 
you know, one of these events or hearing about it repeatedly. And that will cause stress that overwhelms the brain. That's when it goes into the arena of trauma and the more adverse effects of trauma. Another piece, though, of trauma that's really important that has been talked about more in the last few years is the idea of toxic stress. And so toxic stress is basically repeated or prolonged exposure to a stressful environment or to an environment that has these repeated stressors. And so this is also a way where somebody can develop those different symptoms of trauma. And I guess to describe a little bit about what those symptoms are so people understand, when somebody has uh, trauma, severe trauma, they can experience things like avoidance, and that can be avoidance of anything that reminds them of that trauma, memories or thoughts that just keep intruding in their daily life, physiological responses to reminders. So it could be like a sudden increase in heart rate, feeling hot, tense, hypervigilance, meaning just very aware of your environment and different things, a lot of negative thoughts about your future, about the world. Sleep can be chronically disturbed. And we'll talk a little bit more in a bit as to how that happens. And then also for the Black community, suspiciousness. So when we start talking about racial trauma, this is the other thing that can occur. Let's go deeper into that, Dina. Can you talk more about the psychological trauma of systemic racism and give some examples? Yes. So there can be racial trauma as well. And just recently, the American Psychological Association has deemed racism as a public health crisis because they're also starting to realize how much it's impacting minority communities. And so, as I mentioned earlier, toxic stress is a way that racism can be very traumatic because, you know, for instance, Black Americans, they could be repeatedly exposed to this stressful environment and the history of racism that we know dates back generations. And so this is another way, knowing about that history, seeing people in their community being affected by discrimination and systemic racism, institutionalized racism. And so one of the things that makes racial trauma a little different than the other type of trauma I was talking about is that this is an ongoing individual and collective injury. And it's exposure and re-exposure to racial stress, you know, threats of injury or harm, could be humiliating and shaming experiences, and witnessing discrimination. So it's not just about the individual and their experiences, but really their community. And so a lot of the things that we see, you know, nowadays with more social media are these videos that keep occurring of racist events. And so a racist incident, for example, could be a form of victimization uh, imposed and perpetuated by powerful others which can cause similar symptoms to PTSD, like I mentioned earlier. And it can be a form of emotional abuse. In these situations, people can feel dehumanized, helpless, and they can really internalize this oppression and starting to feel that their future is not going to be very good, that they're not going to be able to get out of the systemic difficulties and problems. And the other thing, too, about racial trauma is that it's also within the socio-political context, which makes it also different than other different types of traumatic events. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And what I'd like to do now is just break out some of these institutions and talk about how this manifests in these different institutions. And I think a great place to start would be an arena that I know you've spent a lot of time and energy and passion in. And I'd like to ask you about how this manifests in the educational system specifically and how it impacts youth. Yes, definitely. So with youth, especially if we're looking at under 18, well, trauma can affect the child differently based on their age. 
And so they could also show different symptoms based on their age. So one of the things with trauma is that it can very much impact the developing brain. So it's not just the behaviors that you'll see, but there are actual changes that are occurring in the brain. So for instance, when somebody's exposed to an event over and over and over again, there are these connections that become stronger in the brain and it pairs like the fear system with the memory system. And so these kids start to develop that, that becomes stronger and stronger and they can become more easily triggered because that system is now so sensitive and so strong. So one of the ways that it can impact kids is definitely on their, what we call executive functioning skills. And these are basically the skills that people use on a daily basis to function and which are very much necessary in the process of learning. So it's attention, planning, being able to start a task, organizing, making decisions, being able to inhibit an impulse. So being able to stop and think before you do something. And the executive functioning skills, another one is being able to regulate your emotions, which basically just means that you're able to manage your emotions in a way where they're not going to be too intense and they'll still be appropriate or adaptive in a situation. So this is an area of the brain that really gets impacted by trauma. Another area is the area that is responsible for memory. So once again, if you think about learning and in the classroom, if they're learning this information, but they're not retaining it and they're not remembering it, then the learning doesn't serve much of a a purpose. They're not going to be able to learn in the same way that other kids are going to be able to learn. And then they may start falling behind in class. And another way that trauma can really impact the neurodevelopment and you know, children of school age is the stress response system, which I'll get into more in a few minutes, but the stress response system becomes high alert, which means that these kids can get triggered a lot easier. And if they have come from an environment where they're experiencing this toxic stress, you know, for instance, in the Black community, where they're experiencing the racism and indirect racism, then it impacts them in the way that with the system being on high alert, their brain is more worried about survival. So the brain is not worried about learning at that moment. And so the activation in the brain goes to just being able to survive. And so the child would probably be more hyper alert They could appear inattentive. They could be fidgeting a lot um, because with this comes just that extra energy in the body that can be there and saved from traumatic events. And so this puts children in a very precarious position of school age. And so these can also manifest in in different ways, because if their brain is wired more towards survival, then it's going to be really difficult for them to engage socially with kids, engage socially with adults. So then once again, this could impact having and learning those social skills, but also developing those relationships. And relationships are so important, crucial in healing trauma. So not only is it providing a disservice because they're not learning those skills, they're not having those relationships, but now that factor that could help them to be more resilient and healing from the trauma, that's not there either. Dina, I want to add another layer to this discussion by reading some statistics about the actual institutional reality of the educational environment that these children are in when they're in school. And I would like to get your assessment of the psychological impact of these statistics. I also read these in the last episode. 
And these are from the Department of Education, from the civil rights data collection that they did. And they are as follows. 1.7 million students are in school with cops and no counselors. 3 million students are in schools with cops and no nurses. 6 million students are in schools with cops and no psychologists. And 10 million students are in schools with cops but no social workers. What is the psychological impact of that on these children? Just first off, those are really scary statistics because I believe that counselors or psychologists should be available in all of the schools. I was actually, as you had mentioned when you were talking about my background, I was working in schools and trying to provide a different lens through which they could look when looking at these kids. And so just the children not being able to have a counselor at the school, somebody that they can trust, really puts them at a disservice. And also those counselors could be helping with social emotional regulation. And that's a very important skill for them to learn at a young age. But also, once again, if you have kids who are traumatized or in a toxic, stressful environment, those skills really need to be honed and they need to be able to have that support and build those relationships. The other thing, if you're having cops in a school where you have traumatized youth and they're already in survival mode or in heightened alert, the police presence is going to make it worse because then they may just be more on edge seeing the officers. So it's very, very important to be able to implement this as part of the education and looking on how to support these kids and taking a different route instead of just disciplinary actions and consequences, but more of like a restorative justice standpoint. I think that that's what should be used in the schools um, because it's more effective and it's helping kids to work on conflict resolution versus being given a consequence because they didn't know how to resolve a conflict. Well, if they have a trauma history, chances are their trauma history is impacting their ability to solve conflicts because the way their brain is being wired. And so it serves the traumatized population much better than, like I said, just giving them a consequence. Because the other piece is that Black boys and Black girls, given consequences or disciplinary actions in school, are at a disproportionately higher rate. And so once again, it's through the lens sometimes in which people look at them. So this is one of those other systemic problems with race is that these kids are being pathologized because of their behavior instead of seeing where this behavior is coming from. They're viewed as oppositional, as defiant, instead of, okay, their nervous system is, you know, in a hyper state. How can we help them? And having counselors and school psychologists in the school is such an important factor in being able to really affect change. Dina, I want to build on this discussion of police presence, but to move beyond just the educational system. Given the history of systemic racism and police violence against Black people, can you talk about the psychological impact of police presence and police interaction with the Black community in general? Yes. So as I had mentioned before, you know, racial trauma is not just the individual experience, but those collective injuries. And so Black people could be triggered in certain instances uh, when they see cops by remembering the identity group histories of threat to life or psychological integrity. So then seeing a police officer, it might right away just kind of put them in a hyper alert state. One example I have is a, a personal example, actually. So it was when I was, I think I was uh, 17 or 18 years old. 
And where I grew up, I remember my brother was being pulled over a lot by police officers in some really horrible situations. And so I always had that in my mind. And so there was this one time I was with my black girlfriend and my other brown girlfriend, and I was pulled over by a police officer for later on, he said, making an illegal left turn. But when I pulled over, it was into a gas station and it wasn't just the one cop car that were there. I was swarmed by four cop cars all of a sudden, and it was in the evening. So I remember just guns being drawn and that bright, bright mega light being flashed on me. So I instantly went into hyper alert. I opened the door. I got out of the car. I put my hands up and I'm like, I don't have anything. And then I see them all pointing the guns at me and ordering me back in the car. But that's just one example of something happening. And because quickly to me, in my mind, it ran through who I was with. We're all brown. And I knew things happened to other people in my community. Dina, can you share what the impact of that experience was on you personally? Well, for me, when I look back on that, I remember those details very specifically. I don't remember actually what happened. I don't remember the the resolution or a consequence, whichever. But that's sometimes what happens with trauma is that you won't be able to remember parts of it. And so I don't remember. I just remember that feeling. And even when I think about it, like I get warm even now, all these years later. And when I get pulled over by a cop, I feel that that thing in the pit of my stomach, my heart starts racing. And I think back to that just just quickly flashes in my mind. So that's one of the ways it affects me. And I'm the kind of person then that I'm not going to be quick to call police officers because I don't feel safe for the most part when they're around. So I can imagine in Black communities that it would be even worse, you know, even more stressful. Can you talk a little bit more about this concept of going into survival mode during an encounter with a police officer and what types of trauma triggers could potentially be set off by that encounter? Yes, definitely. Because I think that that is something that really should be understood. So, Basically, the way the brain works is that if we're talking about the stress response, is that there are like three parts of the brain. We divide into three parts, like the bottom part, so bottom up. And just so you know, the brain actually develops from bottom up. And so this actually plays a role, too, in how childhood trauma would be different than an adult, you know, based on their brain. So if we're looking at the brain developing bottom up, the bottom of the brain is the reptilian brain. So that is the most primitive part of the brain. And so that one is basically dealing with your heart rate, your arousal, basically keeping you alive. So it's like the brain stem and and a little further up. Then you have the second part, which is the emotional brain. And so that is basically where your emotions are housed. And so I'm really kind of classifying these into chunks. The brain is not that simple and there's a lot of complexities to it, but this is the best way to be able to understand the the stress response. And so then above the emotional brain, you have what we call the mammalian brain. And this is the most sophisticated part of the brain. And that goes back to that area of the front of the brain where I was talking about earlier in regards to those executive functioning skills, decision-making, regulating emotions. And so what happens with the stress response is basically somebody or the brain perceives a threat. So it may not even be a real threat, but it perceives a threat. And then the part of the emotional brain sends a signal, which kind of starts this whole process, the stress response process. And so through this stress response, it results in a release of adrenaline and cortisol. So with cortisol, cortisol is very helpful. Once again, this is to help you to survive, but it's very helpful in short spurts. 
not over a period of time. So somebody who is having prolonged trauma, that toxic stress that we talked about, can end up having higher levels of cortisol because they're living just in a more stressful environment. And that can have a lot of negative impacts, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So the cortisol and the adrenaline. And so another piece is that the more adrenaline somebody has during a stressful incident, the stronger the memory is encoded. And that can be useful to understand a little bit more of the racial trauma, which I'll link to in a minute. So I want to get to what you were talking about in terms of that fight or flight response. So what happens is that there's several different responses to stress. There can be the fight response, flight, and then something else that we call freeze. So the way those will look is that fight is basically, you know, that adrenaline and the person is ready to fight to survive. You know, muscles tense with a lot of, you know, energy and usually anger in that state. Flight is when people will run away and they will just, it's this automatic reaction and they'll run away for safety. And then there's a freeze response, which is the most primitive. That's in that reptilian brain I was talking about. That's the most primitive uh, response, which is complete shutdown. So the way this can look is that you'll see the person just staring off blankly. It's like they're almost paralyzed. They can't take in what information. They can't take in instructions. If you're telling them something to do, they're frozen. And so that can sometimes be the initial response before a fight or flight response, or sometimes that can just be the the response on its own. And so another piece here is a more adaptive response that becomes shut down during a moment of stress. And an example that I like to give is, for instance, babies you know, or, or really young children, where something happens like a noise and they'll look to their parents for safety. Like, okay, is everything okay? And then based on the parents' response, they'll, like, they'll know, oh, okay, I'm safe, I'm fine. And so they don't go to this. Um, the other parts of their nervous system aren't triggered because they know they're safe. So what happens is that, you know, this is called the social engagement system. So when somebody is in the fight or flight response, that social engagement system is off. So that means that they are not able to take in like, you know, facial expressions, tone of voice. They have this increased sensitivity to threatening sounds when that system is off. And so if we're looking at, like you're talking about those police interactions, If you have a police officer pull somebody over and they have this racial trauma from before, and if they're just watching the news even lately and all these cop shootings of, you know, innocent black men, when they get pulled over, imagine how they might feel. And so with that trauma, they can instantly go into this survival mode, which could be that freeze response. Or it could be that fight or flight response. The other piece, though, is if they're in this fight or flight response, there's a certain part of the brain that goes dark. And that's the area of the brain that is more sophisticated, that deals with being able to regulate your emotions, you know, assessing threats, making decisions, and attention, being able to take in information. So that goes offline. So now they're just coming from this emotional place. So it puts them in a very difficult position, a very dangerous position when they're with these police officers, because sometimes we see, you know, a scuffle, but I'm looking at this and I'm thinking in my head, oh my gosh, this is a stress response. They're going into this fight mode because for them, it's survival. Literally, it can be life or death when we see all these instances of people being killed. George Floyd, for people in the Black community who see this, my question is, how could they not 
think it's life or death when being pulled over if they've experienced these things. And so what happens if, if you have a police officer who's yelling, for instance, instead of giving calm instructions, that is perceived as greater th- threat to the person. So that's not going to be able to calm them down. And they're going to really stay in that stress response. You know, a- another example of this is the Richard Brooks case. We think how, okay, Richard Brooks with some of the other video that came out, it was showing that he was talking to the cops pretty calmly. They were interacting for about 20 minutes or so. And so here, presumably he was feeling okay. He was feeling safe. But then when one of the cops touched him to handcuff him, that response quickly shifted. And then we see this fight response. And he grabs the taser of the police officer and he runs away. Flight. He's trying to survive by running away. And the other piece to keep in mind is it was a couple of weeks before that, that two young adults were pulled out of their car by multiple police officers and tased for no reason other than being out past curfew. So if you see, if you think that Richard Brooks heard about this case, he sees the cops with the taser, they touch him, once again, life or death. And so his brain is telling him, you need to survive. And very sadly, that was not the end result. So that is an example of how this can play out, Um, but also how it can keep happening because that's part of that system. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Demic racism that's occurring in the police department. Dina, when we talk about systemic racism and the history of systemic racism in the United States, can you explain in that context the concept of intergenerational trauma? Yes, definitely. So intergenerational trauma or transgenerational trauma, some people use those terms interchangeably. But from what I know, transgenerational is like from just one generation to the next. Intergenerational is more prolonged effects, like going across three generations. So the idea of trans or intergenerational trauma is that the idea of trauma being passed from generation to generation and how it can really impact the following generation. So that can happen in different ways. In one way, like with the Black community, If we just look at historical, the historical context, the historical trauma of their community and how many times that there's been protests or attempts to try to change the systems and how it's still not changed and there's still not that equality and generation after generation is seeing this. So with the intergenerational trauma, it can happen on like two different scales. So one, it could be that one generation is impacted. And then because, for instance, that parent has that trauma history, and let's say it's unresolved, that can impact the family dynamics. It can impact the way they're going to relate to their child and the type of attachment they'll have with the child and also the coping skills that they use that those kids will then pick up on. Because if the parents have that unresolved trauma, that means that they have these different factors of anxiety and how that anxiety manifests. 
And so they could likely also be driven by that trauma and making decisions based on that. And so I have an example of that too, a more benign in the sense of nonviolent example is that my father, he immigrated to this country when he was 18 years old and he apparently had a heavy accent. And when he came to this country, he experienced a lot of discrimination because one, because of the color of his skin, he was very dark. So people, you know, assumed that he was black and also because of his accent, even though he spoke perfect English. And so because he experienced this, it impacted him so much when he had my brother and I, he refused to teach us Spanish because for him, his, his idea was my kids will learn to speak perfect English with no accent. Therefore, they will never be discriminated against in that way. And so that had a huge impact on me because I lost a piece of my culture. I'm growing up around my cousins, my aunts and uncles, everybody's speaking Spanish. And my brother and I are just looking around like, okay, what's happening? And so that always impacted me. And then also knowing that my dad experienced that and seeing other behaviors in him on how he was trying to avoid being discriminated against. That also impacted me. So that's an example of that transgenerational trauma. So the other way that trauma can be passed through generations is this idea of epigenetics. So there's some research for it, some research against, but this definitely is an area that should be researched more. But I still think it's important to discuss because there have been some research that have come out that demonstrates this. So the idea of epigenetics is basically how your genes or the expression of your genes can change. So previously, we thought that the brain, you know, uh, anatomy and structures couldn't change after you were an adult, but we've learned that's not correct. The brain is very plastic, meaning that it can change over time. And so the idea of epigenetics with in regards to intergenerational trauma is that when one generation is experiencing a trauma, either collectively, such as genocide or the Holocaust, or just individually, then their brain can change. And what happens as well is that their genes can change. And when they have children, they could pass on these different genes or, as I said, gene expression. So sometimes you'll have a gene and it can either something can either trigger it so it shows up or trigger or not trigger it and it doesn't show up. So what can happen or what we've seen happen is that the uh, stress response system the next generation of kids could end up having a more vulnerable stress response system. So meaning that they would have a higher probability of developing PTSD or some negative effects of trauma because of this vulnerability to their system. And so, you know, they've shown that the parents can pass these changes on and also increase like the risk of depression or anxiety in these kids. So one example was some studies that have been done on Holocaust survivors. So it had shown that children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors have shown the dysregulated stress response system, and therefore they could be predisposed to experiencing PTSD because their stress response was not effective in helping them cope with stressors. And there was also an association with greater emotional disorders. And so if we're looking at, once again, the Black community and just the historical trauma that that community has experienced, so going from generation to generation, how genes can change, or that expression can change, then you're seeing the next generation being more susceptible 
they're more vulnerable. One thing I want to mention, though, too, just like a gene can be expressed to be maladaptive, it can also be expressed the resilient side as well. So sometimes it could be where the next generation experiences resiliency, or sometimes it even skips a generation because the gene goes to the next generation, but it's not expressed. So that's another way. But once again, you know, there's uh, more research that needs to be done in this area. I want to pivot now back out to the larger picture and ask if you can explain this concept of the cradle to prison pipeline and maybe start off by explaining the concept of adverse childhood experiences and how that fits in. Yes, definitely. So there's this study that was completed and it's a very well-known study, at least in my field. And it was completed by CDC in partnership with Kaiser Permanente from 1995 to 1997 with adults. And it's one of the largest investigations of childhood abuse and neglect and household changes and later life, health and well-being. And so the study is called the Adverse Childhood Experiences, and it's called ACE for short. So an adverse childhood experience are potentially traumatic events that occur in childhood. So between birth through 17 years of age. An example of some of those events could be neglect, physical abuse, domestic violence in the home, a parent being incarcerated, drug use in the home, severe poverty in in the sense of where a child isn't sure if they're going to have a meal that night. So those are all considered adverse childhood experiences. So in this study, they have a list of these and they gave them to the adults and they did retrospective look of their childhood and how it correlated with health challenges or their overall well-being as adults. And so as the number of ACEs increased, so did the risk for negative outcomes. And some populations they saw were more vulnerable to experiencing ACEs because of the social and economic conditions in which they live, learn, work, and play. So in this study, at least 60% had at least one ACE and 12.5% had four or more ACEs. And so here, once again, if we remember what I was talking about a little while ago in terms of neurodevelopment, if you have these kids who are having all these traumatic events or toxic stress, It can really impact their executive functioning skills, the area of memory in their brain, emotional regulation, and also attention. So these ACEs are also associated with conditions such as living in under-resourced or racially segregated neighborhoods, frequently moving, and like I mentioned, they can cause toxic stress. So One of the things that they saw in this study is that people with more ACEs were having more health issues. So they were having more cases of obesity, pain disorders, muscular disorders, autoimmune disorders. And some of these are related to the stress response that I talked about earlier. If we go back to that piece for a minute with the cortisol being released for prolonged periods of time. And so an analogy is kind of like when you get in the car and you press on the gas pedal and you're pressing all the way down, you're going really fast, but then you get take the foot off the pedal, that's like a regular stress response. Okay, so you push the pedal, release this cortisol, you get through it, then you let go of the pedal. What happens with toxic stress is that the pedal never goes fully up. So it's kind of idling. And this cortisol is being released and that can be damaging to the different systems in the body. And so then it makes people more prone to health challenges later on. And then an example is right now, the health disparities that are causing black people to die at a disproportionately high rate due to COVID and other minorities at this time too, dying at a higher rate. 
And so you had asked about like the cradle to prison pipeline. And so this is also where Blacks are, once again, disproportionately being singled out. And so they're being incarcerated at a disproportionately higher rate than whites. And if someone has one parent that was incarcerated, it increases the probability that they will be incarcerated sometime in their life. And a parent being incarcerated is, is one of those aces. And so that's once again, then that, you know, systemic racism, which keeps that, you know, community in that loop. And it's, it's about more resources need to be given to those communities and to the education system really increasing trauma-informed care and putting a different lens instead of pathologizing um, to be able to help these communities and end the racism and the effects of the racism that we've seen. I want to actually ask you to expand on that a little bit in terms of your recommendations for what needs to be done because we are in a uniquely transformative moment where it seems that there are very real possibilities for substantive change that have perhaps never been possible in American history before now. And so I just want to ask your opinion and assessment, Dina, for what are some of the things that you think can and should and need to be changed starting immediately? That's an excellent question. One area that I can think kind of like on an individual level is accepting that there is white privilege. It does not need to be looked at as a dirty word. Sometimes people get very defensive and instead just looking at it as what it is, which is the fact that they do not have, and historically do, the same disadvantages as people of color. A great example of this, I just want to throw this in real quick, was this one video that really stuck out with me that I saw where there was this coach and he had all these kids lined up and they were of different ethnic backgrounds, you know, whites and um, people of color. And he told them, he says, okay, whoever can get to me first gets the money in my hand. But first, I want you to follow a few instructions. And then he started reading off some of those ACEs, you know, those adverse childhood experiences. He would say, if you have not experienced this, take a step forward. And then he read several of them. And as he's reading them, you see that all the, you know, people of color are being left in the back. And so then when he's done, you see this staggered um, view of these kids with the people of color all the way in the back, some at the starting line and whites further up. And then he says, okay, when I say go, go ahead and run to me. And whoever comes here first gets the money. And so then everybody runs. And obviously, you know, the white kids were able to get there first. And he's like, well, that's white privilege. And it was just a very good visual and descriptive picture of what it is. And so it's just about acknowledging it because by not acknowledging it and just defending against it, it's really invalidating the experiences of uh, black individuals. And the invalidation is also another form of an emotional injury because they're saying that's not the truth. There's other reasons why you're not achieving what I'm achieving. And so it just really adds to the wounds. So, like I said, accepting that there is white privilege and then moving forward. Okay, how can we change the system? And so one thing I think about, too, is when people say Black Lives Matter and I hear the rebuttal, all lives matter. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with using that as a rebuttal because, once again, it's missing the point. Invalidating the person of color's experience that black individuals experience because of course they're saying all lives matter but it's the idea of right now it doesn't seem like black lives matter as much so that's where we're emphasizing 
So really people having to, to take a hard look at some of those things and to be able to just see the experience of the other person without the defensiveness that looking at it like it's not about you, it's about them. You're putting the focus on the wrong side. That's a part about like on an individual level, but in a bigger level, the grand scheme is, as we were talking earlier, the education system. So housing the schools with more resources, more resources like making sure kids are having PE, making sure kids are having the opportunity for music, for art, those creative forms, because those are also important to develop the brain. That shouldn't be something that a child gets to experience only because their parent has money and can afford those private lessons. So really being able to give that to the community, because especially in terms of music, music can be very healing and very regulating. And especially in the Black community, music is an important piece of their culture. And that is also helpful for their brains. And so taking that out of the school, it does the children a disservice. And so really being able to have a trauma-informed lens in supporting these children and looking more at helping them to regulate their emotions, helping them to resolve conflict, and then trying to really help their social skills. Those are the areas that can be very helpful, but also understanding the biology of trauma and how some of these kids could have these neurodevelopmental delays or insults and not just going quick to pathologize the child and instead looking to see, okay, how can we help them? How can we best support them? So that's some of the ways in the educational system, at least, you know, high school and below. And then it can also help in colleges by having more professors who are people of color and making sure that the cohorts are, you know, of a, of a diverse group. Because once again, if, if you're not having the diversity in those groups and those conversations that are being had in higher educational levels that then later on go to become something greater as the books people produce and the policies that are made, then you're missing a voice and you're missing part of the community. And so it's really important to have it on that level as well. And when people are able to see there's people of color at those levels, it helps them to have that hope that, hey, I can do this too. I can reach that level. And then being able to have that support in that institution from those, you know, POC professors. Those are are some ways. Other ways are in terms of police departments, for police departments to, and the police officers to have more and better training regarding mental illness and also trauma. So that way, if they see somebody out there and, or they're called to a situation that they're able to assess it correctly and be able to help the individual. Because like I said, with these trauma reactions, if you see somebody and they're going into that fight response, okay, how can you de-escalate them? But in a way that's de-escalating the nervous system and not yelling at them and barking out orders and shooting or handcuffing them right away because they're in a freeze response of stress and trauma and they can't, function the right way. They can't respond to you. They're going to have a delayed reaction. Somebody shouldn't be shot because they're traumatized. And that's a way to be able to help in terms of that too. And, and there's a lot of other multiple ways, healthcare, different policies that can be made. So there's just on so many different levels, but those are a few. Awesome. I want to transition now and talk a little bit about your therapy practice and how you're building it with a location independent infrastructure. Can you talk a little bit about what you do and how you're doing it? Yes, it's something that I'm very excited about. And I had actually thought of the idea from the Nomad Cruise and talking to people there about how I could become uh, location independent at some point. So what I've done is that I've paired with a group and I provide part-time online therapy. So I was doing this prior to COVID-19. 
But since COVID-19, all therapists and clinicians have been doing what's called telemental health. So basically therapy via video chat. So it's like Zoom, but we use a more secure server. And so the idea is that in a few years, being able to build this up, that I would be able to take this full time and then I'd be able to travel, which is my passion, and be able to still serve and help communities from wherever I'm at. That is so awesome. And at the end, we are going to have you give out your information for how people can learn more about your practice and connect with you and all of that. But at this point, Dina, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? Yes, I am ready. Let's do it. All right. What is one book that has significantly impacted you over the years that you would recommend people check out? The Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I love that book, but it's about a Holocaust survivor. So he's writing the book from his perspective, but it's just an amazing book. Amazing book. We will link that up in the show notes for sure. All right. What is one app that you're currently using that you'd recommend people check out? One app that I really like and that I actually suggest to my clients is an app called Aura, A-U-R-A. And so it basically gives like these free short meditations on like different topics. So they're like three minutes, but it's, it's just really wonderful way to kind of incorporate ways to relax um, and be more mindful during the day. Awesome. If you could have dinner with any person that's currently alive today that you've never met, who would you choose and why? Dan Siegel, or actually maybe Bezel Vanderkoek, because, um, well, they're both really big in the field of trauma and they have provided just like a wealth of knowledge and really changed, I think, the perspective and the trajectory of the field. And I really just love their work. Awesome. All right, Dina, of all the places you've traveled in the world, what are your top three favorite travel destinations you'd most recommend people check out? Spain, for sure. I absolutely love Spain, the culture, the food. So definitely there. The other place, oh, Bali. For sure, Bali. And I would say Thailand. Nice. Yeah. All right. What are your top three bucket list destinations, places that you've never been that are the highest on your list right now you'd most like to go? Okay. That one's easier. That one would be Iceland. Definitely want to go there. Costa Rica and South Africa. All right, Dina, we have come to the final and most important question of the lightning round. I know you and I know that you are a hip hop fan. And so I'm going to ask you to name your top five favorite hip hop MCs of all time. But before you name them, I want to ask you what you love about hip hop and what hip hop means to you. Well, I grew up listening to hip hop. Um, and I think one of the reasons why I gravitated to it was. Well, one, the beats. I love to dance and I just found that I could always dance to that. And the other piece is just the lyrics, you know, really on how these MCs are talking about their experiences, things that they've been through and, you know, in a kind of an uncensored way. Um, and it's just different than listening to other types of music, which I enjoy. It just has a different meaning listening to it. It's just like I kind of go into this place of, I don't know, like community also. It, it, it kind of feels like being part of a, another community when I listen to the lyrics. All right, Dina, last question. Who are your top five? Okay, I would say, and this is not in any specific order, but I would say Outkast, Lauren Hill, Eminem, Too Short, and hmm, who would that last one be? So many. I would say taking it really back old school, easy. Wow. What a geographically diverse selection <laughs> of MCs. You got the South, you got the East Coast, you got the Midwest, you got Northern California, and you got 
Southern California, when you named those first four and you didn't have an L.A.-based MC and you were born and raised in L.A., I was like, <laughs> you know, is she going to have one in the top five? And then you dropped easy. So nicely done. That is awesome. All right, Dina, I want you to let people know about your therapy services. What type of therapy do you offer? What types of people might be a good fit for your services? And then how can people learn more about your professional services, but also just connect with you as a person and follow you on social media? How do people find you? Yes. So with the therapy services, the population I typically work with is, or that I enjoy working with too, is people who have a trauma history. And that can be either just, you know, one traumatic event or, you know, prolonged abuse or toxic stress, like I was referring to earlier, and also teenagers. I love working with teenagers. And so right now I provide, you know, individual or couples therapy, but in the near future, I'll also be doing group therapy online. So I also work with uh, people who have depression, anxiety, self-harming behaviors. Those are the, the top ones that I work most with. And you're remote, so people can work with you from all different countries around the world. So how do people contact you both about your therapy services and also just to follow you as a person? Yes. So to contact me for the therapy services, it's at synergyetherapy.com. And then they could just type in my name from there because I'm under California, just because that's where I have my primary license. But I have temporary licenses in, in other states. Um, but I can work with people in, in internationally. That's not a problem. Awesome. We are going to link that up in the show notes. You can just go to one place at themaverickshow.com and go to the show notes for this episode. And there you will find Dina's link as well as links to everything else we've mentioned in this episode. And then Dina, any other place you want people to connect with you? On my Instagram the name is travel.muse, M-U-S-E, underscore Dina, D-I-N-A. All right. We're going to put that in the show notes as well. Everything in one place at themaverickshow.com. Dina, thank you so much for coming on the show today and for all of the amazing things that you shared. I appreciate you. Thank you very much, Matt. I'm really glad that we were able to do this. I just think it's a really important, relevant topic very timely. I do as well. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you buy cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber to get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals. Schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.